Welcome to Foresight Friday Roundup, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Verda, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Friday, December 17th. Before we get started, I wanted to thank everyone who logged into our holiday virtual piano bar on Wednesday night. We had a blast. And unlike virtually everything else nowadays, we didn't record it. Uh, at least I hope not. And today's episode of the Roundup, which will be our final episode of the year, we're going back to where we started 2021, and that's with the COVID-19 pandemic. This week was the classic good news, bad news story. This week marked the first anniversary of the first COVID vaccine shot in the U.S., but we also passed the 800,000 mark in terms of COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. To opine on how far we've come and how far we need to go to get this public health emergency behind us are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? I'm still reveling in the afterglow of our holiday party. Dave, you were a fantastic MC. Your red holiday hoodie and one-of-a-kind delivery captured the Foresight Health's quirky demeanor perfectly. I also really enjoyed our Troubadours live renditions of our monthly healthcare songs. John Zam sang those parodies with gusto, you know, churn, baby, churn, revenue cycle actually brought a tear to my eye. Yeah, that was a great time. Thank you. And uh, if I wash that hoodie, I won't put it in with the whites because everything will turn red. I got to be careful with that. Julie, how about you? How are you doing? <laughs> well, it's been a whirlwind, I think, for all of us for the race at Christmas and everyone getting their last meeting or last dollar in the door and COVID everywhere. But all I know is that my son is home from school and our little pack is back together. So all is good. Uh, that's That sounds great. You making him any special meal? Did he request anything? Well, if this is any indication of my cooking, he requested takeout on his first night home. So... <laughs> 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 well, you don't pay for that at college usually, so totally understandable. Thank you. Now, before we talk about COVID, and because this is our last show before the new year, uh, let me ask you about your holiday shopping status. Uh, Dave, are you done shopping, or are you one of these last-minute thrill-seekers hoping the uh, supply chain doesn't fail you? We're in good shape. We only need to get gifts for a couple of toddlers. But those are really the easiest to find, you know, clothes and books that work really well. Got it. Thanks, Dave. Julie, how about you? Is everything crossed off your list or are there a few items left? You no, know, I'm the typical. I think everything's crossed off my list. And then I think of things the week before and then I pay exorbitant shipping fees, et cetera, et cetera. So I just want to say one thing I found that's interesting this year is that I have done more shopping on my phone, I think, than I think in any other year. And I find that I'm doing it late at night in bed. So I don't know if that's a really positive trend for Christmas, but it's working. <laughs> Easy access, right? That That's great. We're all but done. I think the only thing left is something for the dog, and uh, she'll be happy with anything that she can eat. So she's not that picky at this moment. All right, let's talk COVID. Now, remember, this is the glass half full part of the show. As I mentioned in the open, this week marked the one-year anniversary of the first COVID vaccine in the U.S. 
We've administered nearly 500 million vaccines since then, and now 61% of the U.S. population is fully vaccinated. Dave, what two or three things make you optimistic and how we've handled COVID so far and that will wrestle this beast to the ground in 2022? It is a beast. We're not talking as much about herd immunity as we were a year ago when Pfizer and Moderna started rolling out their vaccines. But that's really our best hope for getting COVID under control in 2022. Ironically, the Omicron variant, which is spreading everywhere right now, will likely speed our path to herd immunity. Those who haven't been vaccinated are at greater risk of hospitalization and death. That is not trivial. On the other hand, the variant's high transmissibility will create higher levels of natural immunity among the non-vaccinated, in particular in the nation as a whole. So herd immunity, here we come. Ra, ra, ra. No more COVID flu in 2022. (laughs) Anyway, despite my pep rally cheer there, which I hope goes over, I'm not optimistic that COVID will entirely disappear in 2022 or even beyond. And I'll come to that back to that later in the program. The other thing that makes me optimistic about curtailing COVID in 2022 are the hard lessons we've learned about health equity and broad population health. As long as COVID remains virulent in any part of the world, mutations can emerge and boomerang back to infect all other parts of the world. Imagine how much disease and death we could have prevented had we been able to achieve herd immunity before the Delta variant went on its rampage. Consequently, there needs to be not only a focused effort in the U.S. to achieve broad-based immunity, but also a global campaign to immunize enough people throughout the world to create worldwide herd immunity. So we won't be entirely safe until everyone is safe. And this is the type of understanding born out of pain that the Greek poet Aeschylus described millennia ago when he wrote, quote, in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own despair against our will comes the wisdom through the awful grace of God close the quote. It's in that spirit I'd like to end with a hopeful reflection on 2022. Like nothing else in my lifetime, our lifetimes, COVID has touched each of us in deeply personal ways. It's triggered an enormous amount of rethinking about individual priorities and life choices. Americans are changing jobs and moving to new locations in record numbers. I'm hopeful that our industry's collective experience in managing through COVID triggers equivalent rethinking about the structural flaws plaguing U.S. healthcare. Status quo business practices are bankrupting the country and not providing the basic primary mental health, disease management, and preventive care services that the American people so desperately need. Embracing value, integrating mental and physical health care, and investing in healthy multipliers is our post-COVID call to action. 2022 is the year for this industry to make meaningful improvement, but the clock is ticking. All very true, Dave. I remember not too long ago, I think one of our questions was, uh, do you know anybody who has COVID, right? <laughs> I mean, when you think about that, what, how, how naive we were. That's great. Thank you. Julie, what two or three COVID positives made your list this year and hopeful that the pandemic will come to an end next year? Well, in a spirit of being positive, you know, I just reflect back to where we were last year this time, and we have taken control. I mean, Biden was just coming in, Slavitt went into the White House, 
we started to develop state federal partnerships, coordination at all levels. We took control of whatever we had, right? Vaccines have come out, coordination among pharmaceutical companies, what? And, you know, mass distribution, like we've never seen. I mean, the control we have taken over this compared to where we were in 2020 is striking. I think we've learned a lot. You know, the percentage of COVID patients who died in April 2020 was 1.9%. But from February to July of 2021, it was about half a percent each month. So, yes, the disease is changing, but our ability to control the severity from learning clinically, from learning through science is amazing. And we just have a better toolbox. I mean, we don't quite have the mass testing infrastructure I'd like to see, but our testing is so much more capable. And we're seeing our first pill-based intervention now, right? This allows safer, healthier quarantine. And I'm I'm just so pleased to see that we're starting to really get to what will be a more normal way of thinking of treating disease or virus, I should say. And I think most importantly, we as people have just started to live with this. And I think we have a little bit of Darwin at play. There's no doubt about that. But I don't see us shutting down in ways we have in the past. I see us looking at how we live through these waves. So um, hopefully those are positive enough. (laughs) No, no, that's great. It is impressive on how fast COVID research is getting published. You know, a lot of times, you know, historically, this stuff takes months if not years to uh, get into print but they're turning up turning this stuff around pretty quick that's great thank you dave anything to add to julie's comments i really like your observation julie that we're learning how to live with this and that's a nice segue into the fact that i think we're going to be living with this for a long time this week my friend zeke emmanuel sent me an article on of all things the russian flu from 1889 over 130 years ago. Its source was probably a coronavirus that jumped from a cow to human beings in Uzbekistan, spread into Russia, and then went global. In the U.S., we called it the grip. (laughs) Remember that term, the grip? And it exhibited COVID-like behavior, striking the elderly and kids the most, causing a loss of taste in some, and lingering with long COVID-like symptoms in others. Uh, Many believe immunity conferred by the Russian flu in the late 1880s and early 1890s influenced the infection pattern for the great influence of 1917, which is the one we all talk about. That influenza hit young adults the hardest because they hadn't been exposed to the grip. So what can the Russian flu teach us about COVID? It's probably going to be with us for a long time. Elements of the Russian flu likely still exist today and manifest in the common cold. COVID won't go to zero, and that's not a good thing for exposed individuals. And there probably will be periodic reoccurrences like we're experiencing now with Omicron. From a societal perspective, we need to bend the curve enough to prevent hospitals from becoming overwhelmed. And it's kind of echoing Julie's observations. I think we're really learning how to do that. We've reduced the time spent in hospitals. We've gotten much better clinically. I think you're right, Dave. We're publishing information earlier and getting it out there. So we're learning how to do that. Over time, the virulence of the coronavirus that triggered the Russian flu diminished to the point of our not having to worry about it. That will probably happen with the coronavirus that triggers COVID, but it's going to take some time. Dave, I've never heard of the grip. 
So I always learn something doing this show. Thank you. Now let's talk about what's on the other side of the ledger. And this is the glass half empty part. We top the 800,000 COVID death mark. We're topping more than 100,000 new cases a day. And hospitals in many parts of the country are tapped out with COVID patients. That's a lot of topping. Julie, what's happening now in terms of science, medicine, policy, behaviors that tells you we didn't do a good job and that we're in for a long fight well into next year? Well, I think we're unraveling a bit. You know, for those who are following the science, Omicron is a distinctly different evolutionary strain from Delta, which means in my quite unscientific talk that the two are almost now charting their own course. And that's what's worrying people. You know, politicians and governments around the world are starting to divert from scientists' recommendations left and right, pretty much. The first example is that some countries are now shifting the time interval for the booster shot, which is supposed to be six months. And scientists say that the point of the six-month interval is to allow for maturation of, of the vaccine to get the best immune response. And some are now shortening that to four and a half months. And people are concerned about what that means if you boost too early. There have also been some folks who are advocating for the creation of an Omicron-specific vaccine. However, because Omicron you know, has now taken a different path from the initial Wuhan virus, federal officials and pharmaceutical executives aren't supporting that because it starts to put us on this path of having to manage slightly different vaccines almost concurrently, which could create bigger problems and certainly operational problems. And then on a totally different level, you know, after the Louisiana court decision regarding vaccine mandates came down, we're seeing hospitals revert back to normal. You know, folks like HCA, Tenant, Cleveland Clinic, Advent Health are dropping their vaccine mandates. They all seemingly have good justification for doing so given workforce situations and you know what's happening now with hospitals getting slammed all over again with Omicron just right after Delta. But I'm not sure we're moving in a positive direction for all. So it feels like we're just getting desperate. Yeah, I hear you. I think that reversal by the hospitals and hospital systems on mandates, that's really troubling. Thank you. Dave, you're a baseball fan. Uh, where did we swing and miss this year on COVID? And how is our past performance going to haunt us in 2022 and beyond? I've got a couple of swings and misses I'll get to in a second, but I did want to comment on that decision by many health systems to drop the vaccine requirement. I, and I agree with you both that that's a troubling development, but also they really don't have a choice given the uh, numbers of new patients they're finding and how hard it is to staff. And it makes me worried about how close the system might be to breaking when we're making those kinds of trade-offs. That's a really, really tough equation there. But in terms of swings and misses, number one, and it's it's so much bigger than anything else, and it's even bigger than COVID and bigger than healthcare, is that our failures have been political. The spread of disinformation broadly throughout American society, but particularly as it's related to COVID, is is just been breathtaking. 20% of Americans believe there's a microchip in the vaccines still. The politicization of, of scientific knowledge and public health policies has, has been just a devastating development. I mean, it's really to the point where public officials elected and appointed 
have often traded lives for votes. That's that's where we are right now. And this political divide, as it's manifested itself through COVID and in other ways as well, is going to haunt us for years to come and may even break the country. I mean, that that's kind of where we are right now. So number one biggest swing in this is our inability to collectively get behind fighting a disease, a, a public health crisis, the way we have in the past as a country in fighting common enemies. So that's swing and miss number one. The other one that, that I'd cite, and we're getting better at it, is America's been slow generally to learn clinically how to treat COVID relative to other countries. Most of what we've learned about improvements in clinical treatment has come through research done in Britain, Australia, and other countries. Our testing infrastructure, as Julie mentioned, is better, but still haphazard. The CDC needs to be a whole lot clearer and more consistent in how it makes its public pronouncements on the disease. And that inability to have clear and consistent guidance combined with the disinformation, it will haunt us as well. And I think our inability to adequately test and track disease spread, which which we still haven't completely gotten our hands around, could haunt us going forward as well. Got it, Dave. Thanks. Yeah, I think the personal and physical attacks on public health officials, that's particularly disturbing. Julie, anything to add to Dave's comments? Well, I think you're starting to see big voices like Farzad Moshashari come out and say things like, I recognize now that I'm just going to get it. It's inevitable and it's just a matter of time. (laughs) You know, I think our mind is shifting here and we have to now really be thoughtful about, okay, If you take that approach, how do we actually deal with things differently than we did over the last year? And certainly when you look at the nursing homes, immunocompromised, elderly, we just need to be doing a better job there than I think we have in the past. And I think there's this question of shutdown I alluded to earlier. I think it's going to become a big debate quickly and die, but I hope we don't make the wrong decision because I don't think this country can handle that again. And unfortunately... (laughs) You know, some recent data shows that, first of all, the head of the CDC talks about how we're still losing 1,100 people a day, right? 1,100 deaths a day from COVID. But there's some recent data that showed that people are still holding tight to their Christmas travel plans. And many plan to get on a plane. And I can't argue with that. Everyone has something they want to do. But I think we have to be thoughtful about what are we doing today? Are we masking up indoors? All of that. Or are we just ready to get it? And that's that's kind of where we are. Right. It's scary to even ask the question, uh, who will be the last person to get COVID in the U.S.? Uh, as a sports fan, I, I always see professional sports as a bellwether. I mean, they play games on Christmas, right? So it would take a lot not to play. <laughs> and this week we had a number of basketball and hockey games canceled because so many players tested positive. You know, canceling professional sporting events to me is a sign that we're in for a rough year. I hope I'm wrong. Now let's talk briefly about other big healthcare news this past week. Julie, what non-COVID news made your healthcare headlines? Gosh, I can't. I don't really have any non-COVID news, but because it's COVID related, and I can't believe we've made it 20 minutes into this discussion and haven't once discussed JP Morgan, but arguably the largest investor healthcare conference in the country, if not the world, just went virtual this past Wednesday, maybe, which 
not only shifted a lot of people's plans in the industry, but if you think about what the economies have been through in cities like San Francisco, and this was a, you know related to you know, working with the city on this decision. So hotels are now basically deferring all that revenue to 2023. And that's devastating. I mean, really devastating. So we are seeing kind of big swings of shutdown-like actions happening. Yeah. Talk about your bellwethers. That's great. Thanks, Julie. Dave, what blipped on your healthcare radar this past week? Well, I did just write yesterday about the J.P. Morgan conference as well. And it was a shocking announcement in many respects because J.P. Morgan had been so almost strident in pushing forward that they were going to go ahead with the conference and that they weren't going to accept any virtual presentations, that you had to be there in person. So Julie's right, a big shift. You know, the thing that really caught my attention this week, Dave, was the announcement that U.S. healthcare spending was up almost 10% in 2020 from 2019, where it was 4.3%, more of a normal healthcare number. And I'd been operating under the assumption that healthcare costs actually declined in 2020 because of all of the lost elective surgeries. And that's part of the reason insurance companies had monumental profits in 2020. And all of this uh, increase essentially was fueled by the federal government. And when the dust settles, it looks like healthcare will be about 20% of the overall economic spending in 2020. It's got me wondering about this new monetary policy, which says uh, there are no constraints on the amount of debt that a federal government can issue. You know, that works as long as interest rates are 1%. We're starting to see inflation again. Healthcare is a big part of it. Anyway, that's what caught my attention. I want to think some more about that particular set of facts. Yeah, we're digging a pretty deep hole. (laughs) We'll see if we can get out of it. Thanks, Dave. For me, it was the uh, new West Health Gallup survey that said 30% of respondents didn't seek medical care over the past three months because of the cost. That's a big jump in that number. And if affordability wasn't a crisis before, it certainly is now. Bah humbug. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Dave. And thank you, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. We'll be back on January 7th with our first episode of the new year. When we make our bold healthcare predictions for 2022, you won't want to miss that episode. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. You also can find a recording of this podcast and all our podcasts on the Healthcare Now Radio Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other streaming services. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. For all of us here at Foresight Health, I wish our listeners a safe and healthy holiday and a new year filled with market-based healthcare reform. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Burdup for Foresight Health.